0: I guess while we're waiting, I'll um, just do a little brief introduction of who I am for those of you who don't know me, and, um, and then we'll go into the into the into the first part of the six-part session. Um, I'm I, right now. I'm still on faculty at Loma Linda University. I'm a physician, um, but I no longer work full time at Loma Linda. Right now, I'm the medical director for the jail system for the County of Orange, California. You know, you see like the real housewives of, of the O.C. Um, that's the county, of course. The people in jail aren't the people on the show in general. Um, so I, my ministry work, I find actually far more rewarding and meaningful inside the jails. And I do a lot of public health work as a medical director for one of the public health divisions. And in the community, then, honestly, even at conventions like this. Um, because you really reach people who just don't know Christ at all. And their lives are in shambles. And... One of the problems, or one of the challenges, I should say, to the remnant church really is reaching the people who are the furthest from God. Um, And a lot of times we're good at reaching each other, but um, when you really start to deal with murderers, uh, gangbangers, um, rapists, child molesters um, on a daily basis and have to provide quality medical care to them, it really pushes your Christianity because you have to really look at them and really learn to look at people as God looks at them. Um, and if you don't learn to love people regardless of what they've done, you can't work in the jail. It just doesn't work. You'll, you'll, you'll try and be judge and jury yourself and punish people. And so it's really, you know, I've been doing that since like last summer. And that's really, really helped me a lot. I don't know how much longer I'll be doing it, but because uh, it is very taxing. But it's, it's, it's been a very good spiritual experience for me. Um, And I'll weave in some of the stories as we talk throughout the day, because there's some very interesting things, obviously, that happen inside of a county jail system with a population with three million people. I mean, our county is is bigger than many of the southern states in terms of population. So it's it's a big system, and it's an interesting system. I went to medical school at the University of Miami in Florida. I grew up in Connecticut, in Hartford. Actually, one of my good friends from childhood is here, Yoka. And... um, Actually, I forgot how cold it gets living in California, Miami, so this has been a reminder as to why I stay in California, um, but it's it's, it's, um, it's really good to be at GYC. This is, I believe, a big part of God's last push, and I don't know, We maybe we overlook how significant what was happening here really is. I was doc- talking to Dr. Pippin last night, who was a wonderful soldier at the cross, and um we were just talking about the impact that this has, audio verse, I and mean, you got me wired for it. Um, I've gone to Europe and spoken um, a couple times a few years ago, and it's amazing how all of this information is being transported by technology around the world and feeding the little tiny fragments of the remnant in places where they're not getting a word from their churches. So it's a powerful, powerful thing that we're a part of, and we really should be very prayerful, that God's word and it goes out with power from here during this uh, conference because you have all these awesome speakers all in one place all at the same time. So it's, it's a powerful, powerful experience. One day we'll be on the sea of glass and remember how God moved through these conferences. Um, so this is, this is awesome stuff. Um, I also work as a, as a youth pastor uh, um, in California as well at one of the churches and that also helps keep my ear to the ground. One of our uh, young men they called him Fat Daddy. He was a um, actually he was a Crip. Um, when we baptized the when the family was one uh, into the church, his father was a Crip, or his stepfather was a Crip as well. And so he was a, he had come out of it, and he was just murdered um, a week ago. One of his friends set him up. So we deal with some real heavy stuff. <clears throat> I mean, and, and to me, you're not doing ministry until you get to some of those hard issues. Um, and, I, you know, that, that's, that's what drives me in ministry, actually, is reaching those people that are most difficult to reach. And part of the reason my style is a lot different than a lot of other people's style, because a lot of times I really am doing these presentations and doing these talks to people who simply just don't know God and have no experience with Jesus Christ or lost it a long time ago and don't know that they can have it back. Um, so that is, to me, one of the strongest reasons the Remnant exists and why, as the Remnant Church, we have a lot, a lot of work to do. With that said... I want to start by having a word of prayer, if you'd bow your heads. (coughs) Father God, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us into this place, and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace. Father God, we are unworthy of the blessings you give us from day to day. In fact, Father God, you are so much better to us than we are to ourselves. So today, Father God, make me just a mouthpiece, and I ask that you speak through me. Each one of these presentations, Lord, would be touched by your Holy Spirit. And Father God, all who come in contact with this material would be blessed. Bless, Lord, this uh, group that is here with me today as well. And Father God, as we go on this journey, Lord, we learn and grow together in Jesus Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so my talks, um, they have another name for the whole thing, but I didn't make up the name, so I can't even remember it, honestly. Um, they gave it to me, and I was probably supposed to use it. Um, but when we, I was talking on the phone with one of the young ladies, this is the name that kind of came to me as I thought about what I wanted to talk about at GYC. Um, because I really want, again, to make, try and make as much relevant uh, information relevant um, so that for those who are doing ministry in hard-to-reach places and dealing with fighting the battle of the remnant church, meaning that there are people who are trying to unmake us the remnant as well. Um, and so it's tough because you have to, you know, this is a tough thing to do in love, but it is a, it is a real thing. And it's, I think you'll see that um, balance is important, but you can't really waver on truth. Um, and that's one of the key, key principles of the talk. So it's the Dragons War on the Remnant. And here's the overview for all the six um, sessions. And I'll, every time I start a new session, I'll put this slide up. But this one today, uh, this first one is In Search of the Remnant. The second one is the dragon in the digital age. The third one is secret agents and double agents. The fourth one is the real dragon, false doctrine. The fifth one is war on the testimonies. And the last one tomorrow uh, afternoon is the remnant's counterattack. And we'll talk about the things that we're doing and should be doing to really go against what the dragon is trying to do to, to the God's remnant church. So this is part one, in search of the remnant. And we'll be coming from the book of Ezra, which is where I find some of the best verses that describes what the remnant should look like. Um, And you have a picture of Ezra there reading uh, from the scroll in front of the congregation in the newly built temple, and um, a remodel of the the ark there in the lower picture. And we'll be reading from Ezra chapter 9. I'll start at verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests... And the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. So the Bible paints this picture where the children of Israel, um, during this time, they're still in captivity. This is um, after the 70 years that that Jeremiah prophesied. Ezra's been allowed to come back. They're rebuilding the temple. Ezra gets back, and they're trying to rebuild his temple. He's a scribe. (coughs) He's a a great man of God. And he finds that there's these horrible sins being done by those who've never left the actual holy land to be brought into captivity. And what he finds here, as you can see, is that and the key words that I like where am I, where I' put my pen. The key word I like here is this one. I like where he says, they, "So that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands." He understood that the remnant, the, those left behind in Israel, in Canaan, those left behind, were still a holy seed. He understood that they, even though it seemed as if Israel would never rise again, it was a long time that they were in captivity, Ezra understood that they were supposed to stay holy. Just because they were cut off didn't mean that they had the right now to go and do what God had forbidden them to do for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Ezra is really pointing out the fact that the people around them have not changed at all. And then what is most frightening, and this is also key when you start looking at those of us who are supposed to be remnant today, who is chief in committing the trespasses? The princes and the rulers. It's the leadership in Israel that is first and foremost in committing these trespasses. And because it's the leaders, Ezra is really, I should have brought my little one, really unhappy. And this is what triggers him to do this in verse 3. In verse 3 it says... And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished or astonished. When he realized what was going on in Israel, Ezra is blown away. In fact, the scripture says he's astonished. He cannot believe that they're mixing their seed, but more importantly or as importantly, it's the leadership that's leading them in sin. And Ezra understands that if they're going to reestablish Israel, if they're going to remake the nation the way it's supposed to be, one of the things that has to happen is God has got to still find favor in Israel. So he's upset because this is even deeper than this. This goes to the very heart of the great controversy. It goes to the heart of the great controversy because the devil is working his hardest to destroy the children of Israel to blot out God's holy nation because if he can do it, The Messiah will never be born. You see, much of the Old Testament is written so that you understand how it is that that holy seed is preserved. So that Luke and Matthew can write this lineage that goes all the way back to Adam or Abraham, depending on which author, that goes all the way back through all of these people, through God's people. And the devil knows that the Messiah has to be a descendant of David. So what does he do? He tries to wipe them out, brings them into captivity into Babylon. He fights them on all sides. He fights them from within by trying to get them to mingle with the people around them so that they will be wiped out. And and then he can win the great controversy by winning it before Jesus is even ever born. So in Revelation chapter 12, when it says and the, the woman saw, was going to give birth and the dragon sat there, almost as if, the, almost if you look at the literal writing, crouched down waiting for her to give birth to destroy the child. He was already crouching, trying to destroy the child all this time in the Old Testament. And I submit to you, he's doing the same thing today. The devil understands that if there is no remnant people on earth, that meets the qualifications set forth in the book of Revelation and in other places in the Bible, the second coming of Jesus Christ will be postponed, delayed. He thinks he can make it not happen. Because one of the identifying marks of the remnant, as we'll see, is that this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. If you knock out the one group of people with the full gospel, what happens? That prophecy can't be fulfilled. Now, to us, it's like, well, the devil could never do that. But guess what? It could be that the reason we've tarried in the Lord coming is because he's more effective at that than we think. As you'll see as we go through all the different sessions, he's been very good at it. And there are parts of Christianity, Protestant Christianity, that have been completely taken over by the dragon. Completely given away. No remnant even hardly left of any Protestantism or true Christianity almost at all. So he's more effective than we think. And because we're sometimes isolated inside of Adventism, we think that, well, you know, there's this strong body of us. And there are a strong body, but it's a very small number. Six billion people in the world. One billion of them are Catholics. One billion of them are Muslims. One billion plus is Taoist, is Buddhist, pagan, 14, 15, 20. I don't know what the number is now of Adventists, but million. You do the math. And the devil probably feels he's doing just as good today in destroying the second coming as he probably thought he was then in messing up the first coming. So that's why Ezra is so astonished. He's blown away. He understands what has to happen. Ezra gets it. He's a prophet. He knows what's supposed to happen. So he says, then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of of Israel. So who does he bring in when he finds sin? (coughs) He brings in those people that are still respectful of the word of God. There probably weren't a lot of them, but he brings them in. <clears throat> because of the transgression of the house of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. He brings them in, and at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. He had already ripped everything. He had nothing else to rip. He's out of clothes to close the rip. He pulled out his beard, pulled out his hair. As was done. He, I mean, nothing left to tear up. All he got left to do was pray. You don't have to rip your clothes anymore. You can just jump to the prayer part. Um, unless you really want to rip your clothes. But he really, he just, he gets on his, and he prays before God. And he said, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up into the heavens. Ezra does something else that we have to do as the remnant today. <coughs> Ezra takes responsibility not just for his own sin, but for the sin of the people. <clears throat> a lot of times we think that when well, we can go to, a, if we go to a more conservative church and we kind of just go away and hide away, we'll be safe. We don't understand it. When you look at it from a biblical model, the prophets, the leaders never except Moses didn't do it. Ezra doesn't do it. Nehemiah doesn't do it. Daniel doesn't do it. Every time they pray, they don't just pray for their own sin or the sin of the, they're not praying for the sin of those who still tremble at the words of God. They're praying for everyone in Israel. We can't stop praying for people in the Adventist church we don't agree with. We can't believe that we just, we just throw them away or that somehow we're not still a collective body because we are. So we have to have the kind of spirit that Ezra had here where he goes down and he prays and he says, our trespass. Ezra didn't do any of the stuff listed above. He says, since the days of our fathers have we been, we've been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. This is his prayer. He's telling what happened to Israel. And now for a little space, watch this, because people think there's no grace and mercy in the Old Testament. And now for a little space, grace has been showed from the Lord our God. What is grace? It is unmerited, undeserved favor. He says, undeserved favor has been shown from our Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. You see that? God's grace is the only reason you get a remnant. Why? It goes all the way back to Martin Luther, and it goes all the way back to the Protestant Reformation at its core, right? It goes all the way back to the beginning, and it is righteousness by faith. The only reason you have an opportunity to have a remnant today at GYC is because of what happened in Germany all those years ago. It is the understanding that righteousness is by faith. Critical. And you see, he goes on to to, to expound on this a little more in a second. And to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are bondmen. We were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage but have extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. Now, look at where the grace begins to be outpoured. While they're still in what? In bondage. Now, if you look at this in a more symbolic sense, what does this bondage really signify for us today? Sin. While The Bible says while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. I want you to understand that you, you as, even, as a, even when we were in our sins, God was working on your behalf. I wouldn't be here today if he wasn't. There were times when I should have been the one that got shot. I should have been the one that was stabbed. I should have been in a bad car accident. But it was God's mercy and grace that even while we were still in bondage, he was working on our behalf. There were angels that were protecting me in places I should never have been even when I was in my complete deference towards God. And this is one of the reasons I believe in everybody has a, should have the fair opportunity to know Jesus Christ as their savior. Because it, it, doesn't, it, when it, it puzzles me that God has any favor for me still. Perplexes me his mercy. And it, it's really summed up well here. We were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. But he has extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia uh, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. So, another sign of this remnant was that they were supposed to do what? Keep the commandments. They were commandment-keeping people, and he says, Which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land unto which you go to possess it is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. They were supposed to keep God's commandment. They were supposed to do what God said. That's what God challenged them to do, but they didn't do it. And he says, Now, therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever. That ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and, live, and leave it uh, for inheritance to you for your children forever. And after all this has come upon us for, your, for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. They're in bondage. Israel is, the ten tribes have been lost. They're, many of the leaders are still back in Persia. Yet Ezra, even with all going on, says we haven't even gotten the full punishment we deserve. I re- that resonates with me. I haven't gotten the full punishment I deserve. That's why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because the blood of Jesus Christ, his atoning power, literally takes, it blocks, it blunts, it waters down, it, 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 it dispenses some of what I, I'm supposed to get from off of me it reflects it so that when I look at Christ and his blood I understand that I myself although I should be the one that was hung on a cross I should be the one that was spat upon yet I don't get the full punishment I deserve the remnant is a redeemed people they've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and he says and has given us such deliverance as this Ezra understands that they're about to be, they can be delivered That's what being the remnant is all about. It's about deliverance. It's about making it out against all odds. He says, Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? So, when God has delivered you, when he's redeemed you, do you go right back and do the sins he just delivered you from? No, that's not. He says, Wouldest thou not be angry with us till thou hast consumed us so that there should be no more, no remnant, nor escaping? If we go back and do what we were doing, eventually we wear out God's mercy because it is a statement that we just don't want it. So when God has delivered us, do we walk right back into what he delivered us from? But a lot of people turn grace into disgrace, they take grace and they turn it into um You know, kind of an excuse or or a pass to live however they want. This is one of the great attacks the dragon has on God's church in these last days. The idea that grace allows you to just do whatever it is you want to do. And of course, Ezra is saying the exact opposite. Paul says exactly the opposite. If God has delivered you, why would you go back to being in bondage to the Amicalites or the Persians? Yet, in a sense, when we go back into the world and, and, and volley back and forth, that's exactly what we're doing. Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. It says God is righteous. And so when you look at this, there are a few things that, that I want to highlight from Ezra Um, that I think are real important. And one of them is that they survived a great tribulation. They survived a great tribulation. Verse 7 and 8 says that they, you know, just looking at verse 7 and 8, they came out of a lot. And I want to parallel that with us today. I didn't make a slide that does that, but I probably should have. First of all, the Seventh-day Adventist church came out of great tribulation. And I have a timeline in a minute I'll show you that shows you just how chaotic the world was when this church came into existence. We are to be separate from the, they were, to, they were to be separate from the world. Verse 12, we are to be separate from the world. In fact, the scripture says we are supposed to be a peculiar people. We're supposed to, people are supposed to look at us and see a difference. The guy that brought me from the airport here, he said, you know, this is such a nice group of people that, you, that are here for this conference. Almost as if he was Surprised. I said, in general, this is a nice group of people. You, you should be okay. <laughs> uh, but the world should notice that we're different. We don't have to be weird, but we should be peculiar. We should be different. There's a difference between being weird and peculiar. I mean, I think you guys know what I mean there. But we are supposed to be different from the world. We're, we are to keep the commandments of God, verse 15. It's another sign that we're of the remnant. We're supposed to keep the commandments of God. And even when we are turning our backs on the commandments, God still is expecting us to keep it just as Ezra was saying to them. We're saved by grace through faith, and there are two verses that really hit on that, and I talked about that, that the remnant is a people who are saved by grace. And the more I study righteousness by faith, the more I realize why the devil hates it. Because righteousness by faith makes you focus on Christ and not on yourself. And I'm telling you, the secret to winning and, and leading a victorious life is to focus on Christ. It's to turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the hymn says, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. If you look, and that's why righteousness by faith is so important. Because if you don't do that and you start focusing on what you're doing and on yourself, you'll lose the battle because you can't save yourself. But the Bible says that the love of Christ does what? Constraineth us. And when you want to make a change, you should appeal to the love of Jesus Christ. That's where you should automatically go. And I like how Morris Venden writes in in his books, he writes about the the war between um, the, 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 um, the fight of faith or the fight of works. And he makes a very good point. You win the fight of works by winning the fight of faith. Paul says, I have fought the good fight of faith by believing in God. By trusting in God, he will change you. One of my favorite Bible verses is in uh, the book of Mark when the the man brings the demoniac boy to Jesus and the disciples. The disciples can't cast him out. And the man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy upon us. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And then the answer that, that the man comes back to is a powerful comeback. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. That's righteousness by faith. Ellen White says, if you pray this prayer, you won't be lost. It is the prayer that says, I'm inadequate. I can't make it. I'm going to fail. Lord, I believe. I know what I'm supposed to do. But there's a part of me that has disbelief. And you notice that when he, when he finally admits that, Jesus steps in and takes over. And deals with the situation, deals with the demon, and heals his boy. A lot of us fight the wrong fight. And if you're going to be a part of a remnant and go all the way through, your focus must be on Christ Jesus and fighting the fight of faith. That's what dip- difference, differentiates us from the Catholics, who is a f- works-based religion. Muslims, it's a works-based religion. That's one of the reasons that this um, young man, 23 years of age, tried to blow up the plane. As they were going into his life and, and CNN was looking at him, he was a devout Muslim, but he had sexual desire and he felt he was failing Allah because he couldn't in the flesh live up to the pre- all of the, the, the stringent rules of Islam. And when he realized he couldn't do it, he figured that the spiritual way to save himself was to blow himself up in a plane and for jihad. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of steps in between, but the point is when he realized he couldn't win, what did he, he just decided he destroy himself. Whereas with us, when we decide we can't win, we just have to turn it over to Christ. That's why I'm a Christian. I like planes to stay in the air when I'm on them. Uh, I like them to land safely. I want to know that God is on my side, working for me, rather than me trying to work to to get to Him. That's Buddhism. That's Hinduism. That's Mormonism. Judaism. Every other religion in the world is works-based. There's one faith-based religion on the planet, and it is true Christianity. One of the clear identifying marks, why Martin Luther, what he did was so significant, because he reset the compass of religion for the entire world, It had been lost. One man, which wasn't just one man, there was a whole 200-year movement, but one man really sim- symbolizes that, that change. And then he says, um, it came on the scene after the 70 prophetic heirs given to Jeremiah, so Just as that remnant came on the scene at the end of a prophetic time, so did this remnant come on the scene at the end of a prophetic time. So the similarities are there, and there's a lot you can learn, because the threat to the remnant then was mixing with the world. That was the threat that Ezra was most worried about, them mixing with the world. So this last remnant, when you look at the text, it says, And the dragon was wrought with the woman. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. (coughs) And you've all, one thing I like about being here is I don't have to like super explain most of this. Most of you get this stuff. Um, So we can get deeper into some other issues. But I love this text. I I love Revelation chapter 12. I don't know why. I love that chapter. I guess because it's such a good sweeping overview of Earth's history and the end times and really helps you to see the great controversy through the veil. You know, a lot of Christians don't understand the great controversy. They, don't, they have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. So they have no problem sending their children to see Harry Potter movies. Because they have no concept that there is an, there's a veil on this planet that if you remove the veil, you can see through into the supernatural world. And that's where you see the great controversy in its purity. In an essence, it's like what you learn in biology when you learn about um, phenotype and genotype. Most people only see the spiritual phenotype of the world. The phenotype is the part of you that's expressed. So my hair color, my skin color, the size of my lips, my hands, you see that and you think that's me. But in fact, the genotype is all of the genetic material that makes me up. So you'll never look at me and know that my father's grandparents came from Bombay, India to Jamaica. You'll never know that I have a grandfather whose great, his grandfather was from Scotland. Because you can't see, the phenotype doesn't give that to you. The genotype gives you the full picture. Spiritually, we have to look at the genotype. Revelation chapter 12 does that. It lets you see the big picture. It allows you to see all of what's really going on. And this text, and the dragon was wrought with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. It links the remnant church back all the way to Jesus and the apostolic faith here. Also gives you the identifying mark that they keep the commandments of God, which is one of the reasons why the Adventist church, even for those of even those parts of it, we don't fully agree with what they do and how they do it. They all still claim to believe in the Ten Commandments. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's difficult to it's difficult to toss all of them away. Now, some of them you might be able to toss away, but (laughs) not all of them. And. I like what it, what it says here. Revelation nineteen ten says, I am the, I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the what? I want, I want to go a little deeper into this as we talk about the remnant, into the spirit of prophecy a little bit more. Because this, to me, is critical to what we're doing, not just this weekend, but as a remnant church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 23 to 25. And I want to talk about what Paul talks about when he talks about prophecy. Because a lot of times we stop there. We have a whole session tomorrow where I'm going to talk a lot more about Ellen White and her work um, for the remnant. But I want to to talk about prophecy even in a bigger sense first. Because a lot of times people say the spirit of prophecy, we stop, we just think of Ellen White. But in fact, our church has more prophecy, spirit of prophecy than just that. I'm a big fan of a man named Roger Manon. I believe Roger Minot, was—he had the gift of prophecy, and prophecy isn't just foretelling, which is where a lot of people get confused. A lot of people think that you're a prophet when you can predict the future. Prophecy isn't just foretelling; it is also forthtelling, as this verse really describes. It is more than just predicting the future or knowing what's going to happen. It is actually being able to articulate the truth. So Paul says, because I was no. So this is funny, because I just said that thing about that, the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was at a church helping out in, in California, and I found out that a lot of the people at the church believed in speaking in tongues. Adventist church. So see, I, I'm like backtracking. I just said, don't toss them all out, but okay. Um, but in this church, it was a little bizarre. So actually dealt with demon possession at this church. It was a very bizarre church. But maybe we'll get to one of the demon possession stories later. Um... I found out that there was a group of elders, not regular folk in the church, elders, who on Sunday mornings would meet, and they would have sessions where they speak in tongues. And I'm saying, they speak in tongues? Do you mean like they're taking a Spanish class? (laughs) They speak in tongues, and I found out by, by my own experience, they actually do the Pentecostal speaking in tongues, which I don't get myself, but... And it happened in church once. So they, one of the new, a new guy came to help out as a pastor there. Um, he preached. And he does He says we're going to have an anointing ceremony at the end of church. And I'm like, oh boy this is going to get interesting around this, at this church. So they bring everybody starts coming down. Of course the lady, well I, three people over as I'm close by is praying over a lady. I hear sound like somebody like chewing wet toilet tissue or something. I'm like, what in the world? So I look over and the ladies, are, the one of the elders is speaking in tongues in church. I said, oh man. So my turn comes to preach and what do you think I have to do now? A whole sermon on tongues. And I had to go from, <laughs> I mean I had to start at the beginning and go all the way through, I mean I had to start at the Tower of Babel because I had to let them understand that that was confusion and go all the way through Paul and really point out the purpose of the tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues. And I'll give you an example of where it's, you've been used appropriately in the Adventist church. I was in Jamaica, um, doing a four, four weeks in Jamaica, and um, one of their evangelists had come back from Africa, and he said that when he was in Africa, he was preaching, and... Um, They were having trouble with some of the dialects because they were doing like a satellite download all over the continent. And so the people doing the translation because of his Jamaican accent and their dialects, the translators were having a hard time. And so that night they went back together after the first night and they prayed for the gift of tongues. And they said, he said the next night he went and he preached. And when they all came back together, the translator said, we didn't even translate tonight. He said on somehow they all understood you and hundreds and hundreds of people were baptized. I believe, in the, I believe in tongues, in that sense, the gift of tongues. I believe that it is a, a living, active gift to the church, and that when God needs us to have it, he gives it to us. I don't believe in you doing it yourself, though. I don't believe in you making up languages, either. I have a problem with people who make up languages. I think there's enough languages already. And I only know one of them, and I don't even know that one real good. So I'd rather we not start making up languages in church. So they start preaching, and I mean, I'm like, couldn't believe it. And I did it, and I don't know that it even fully resonated with some of the people, but I felt it was my job to go in there and speak truth and not be afraid, even though I knew it was going to make me very unpopular with some of the people who did it. But that's what it means to be Remnant. Remnant is to be Joshua. It's to be Caleb. It's to go out and deal with the problems that exist. To try and t- warn Israel that their time is running out, as Ezra was saying. So this text comes from that. The, Paul's discussions about tongues. And one of the texts I used when I, deal with to- when I dealt with tongues was the text that says, I would rather speak five words in my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Ten th- I mean, that's a pretty good ratio. So he says here, if therefore, this is later in the same chapter, of actually, of that verse, if therefore the whole church become together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say they are that they are mad? Listen, I knew the people speaking in tongues and I thought they were mad. I really did. I thought maybe somebody's having a psychotic episode there for a second. He says, but if all prophesy, now watch the difference between tongues and prophecy. Watch this, because we are the church that's supposed to have the spirit of prophecy. But if, but if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all. Look at what prophecy does. He is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Prophecy tells people that you have God in you. Prophecy makes the unbeliever walk in, the unlearned walk in, and it convinces him. When we speak about the spirit of the remnant church has the ability to speak truth into a world of chaos and delusion. That's what the power of having prophecy on our side, as the remnant church does. It's not simply the testimonies, but again, it's probably best um, evidenced in the testimonies to the church by Ellen White. I mean, it crystallizes it in Ellen White's writings, but this is something that all of us are supposed to have on some level. The ability to deal with error. The ability to speak truth. The ability to share Christ. That is, in part, the forthtelling of the spirit of prophecy. And I get into these doctrinal discussions. I try to stay out of them now, but I get into them anyway. I was on a plane, minding my own business coming here. And I know the Lord wanted me to say, ladies are actually from her daughters in Connecticut, so they're supposed to contact me. The Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to win her and her daughter over into their church. And so the woman was asking me all of these questions, right? I was, you know, all of these powerful questions about the divinity of Christ and the new earth and all of the things that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They're different Bible version. And praise God for what I will call the spirit of prophecy. I was able to, from Scripture, sit there and literally give her a Bible study on the plane for two hours or how long we were talking, and show her verse by verse, John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. How can they tell you he's not God? That is what Paul is saying about prophecy. It's not simply you being able to say, you know what, which is what they do in a lot of the other denominations, you know, people walk up to you and prophesy on you. I got a word for you. I'm going to prophesy on you. God's going to get you a new car next year. No, General Motors Financing is probably going to give me a new car next year. You see what I'm saying? That's what they think. Prophecy is so much deeper than that. Prophecy is God speaking to and through his people. And if the dragon, as the dragon attacks the remnant church, what he wants to wipe out is the spirit of Prophecy. Not just tangibly in Ellen White. He is at war against Ellen White. And one of the, true, one of the reasons I know Ellen White is a prophet is the anger that people have towards her. Because I don't see anybody that mad at Joseph Smith. I don't see anybody that mad at Muhammad. I don't see anybody that mad at, at Barack Obama. Well, on Fox News they're mad at Barack Obama. But in general people don't get that mad at People get worked into a frenzy over Ellen White. Even Adventist people. That is one of the clearest signs to me there's something she's saying that is incredibly bothersome to the dragon. Something she's saying is very bothersome to the dragon. So prophecy, I want you to get this. Of all, a lot of big things I'm going to say, this is critical, that each of us has a part to play in the spirit of Prophecy. Because as the remnant, we keep the commandments of God and we have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. And here you see that testimony unfold as Paul describes this scenario. All right. Man, it's 12 after already. I thought I would have be flying through this stuff. Okay, let's go through the timeline probably because we break at 1030, right? i got to stay on point here. These are pretty strict folk here. I'm normally used to going over the lines, but i got to stay in the lines here. Um, so, here is Berthier, Napoleon's General, taking the Pope captive. Uh, Artist rendition of that. And I want to show you a timeline of the remnant here. Um, and I actually, I'll give my email address and I can send you this PowerPoint. I'm not, I don't make money off anything I do, actually. Much to my wife's chagrin, probably. But, um, So here's the remnant timeline. Um, 538 AD, Justinian gives papal Rome complete spiritual power. What happens from there is that when Justinian, Emperor Justinian does that, you see naturally two things happen. When one church is elevated above all other churches, which there were many churches then, and and the bishop of Rome was given all that power, all of a sudden what happened is they not only took over spiritually, they melded themselves completely with government. And they became a real, almost false theocracy. And so for the next, as the prophecy is, 1260 years, that's the way it was. And this is where in Revelation 12, as we'll see in a minute, the woman has to hide in the wilderness. This is where we talk about the Walden Seas and all the others who had to hide because of the persecution. Once you, you mix church and state together, by default, you're going to get persecution. You see that in Iran right now? And you've seen, it in, you've seen it all over the world throughout history, and that is exactly what there are people in America right now who are dying to get to that point. They want to mix everything back together, and the current pope is really working hard to get that done. So 1781, the American Revolutionary War ends, and I want you to see how the Remnant Church comes out of difficulty in the last days. The American War, Revolutionary War ends, and 1789, the French Revolution begins, So 1789, the French Revolution, with the French Revolution comes reason as religion, and they throw out the church completely, and so by 1798, the papal power is crushed, the 1260 days ends, and that is what is happening here, that it's over here, 1798, just as predicted. The remnant church could not come forward until this date. So any church that existed before this, and you probably have heard this before, couldn't have been the remnant church, couldn't have been the last time church, because... They d- they would have existed in the wrong time frame. So what does the devil do? If you look at when Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the 5% Nation of Islam, the Nation of Islam, when a lot of other groups come into existence, it's also after this date. He's not stupid. So the devil, what he does is he tries to make all these counterfeit groups come up at around the same time that almost look similar. We're SDA, they're LDS. You know what I mean? And then people are like, Well, are you a Mormon? Like, no, they wouldn't let black people into the Mormon church until 1973. I passed on Mormonism. Um, that's actually true, if you didn't know that. And our church wasn't like that. Another sign of the remnant. Um, and so, the French Revolution, the paper power was crushed. In 1831, William Miller begins to preach. 1844, you get the Great Disappointment, and the 2300-day prophecy ends. So in this period, between here and here, here's where God begins to galvanize between the, the paper power crust and the 1844, galvanizes the beginning of the movement to develop the remnant. And once the 2300-day prophecy ends, in 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church starts. But look at when it starts, in the very center of the Civil War. America is at war, and you know why that happened? I'm I'm, going to get off of my notes for a second. That happens because it was the way that God protected and preserved the remnant. The war insulated the remnant church. Rome was not happy that there was a United States of America. When the Roman leaders read the Constitution of the United States, they called it blasphemy. Rome had never seen a power led by Europeans, which America was a European-led nation, descendants primarily of Germany and Britain at the time, primarily of Britain. They could not understand it. All of the European nations who owned all of the lands of the world at the time, most of Africa, the the, the islands of the sea, South America, were all owned by Spain, France, Great Britain, the Dutch. So by by, by the Pope having control over the leaderships of those countries, he was able to control the world for hundreds of years. That's how colonialism and imperialism worked in favor for Rome. That's why South America is all Catholic. Right? Most of the Caribbean is Catholic. Much of Africa was Catholic. He was able to control the world. He was not very happy. The, The papacy, the Roman leadership was angry when they read a constitution where the people were going to lead themselves. Where the people would be able to choose their leadership. Where there was no central bank. And I could go on and on and on and on. When they read the Declaration of Independence, the, uh, the Bill of Rights, I tell people all the time I'm an American because I was born here, but also because of the Constitution. It is the Constitution of the United States that separates the United States from all of the nations in the world. Because our, our, our leadership isn't inherently good, but God did something with the, the wording of the Constitution that set up the protection needed for this church to start. Don't miss that. And the reason they had to start during the middle of the Civil War, when you read um, Bill Hughes' books on the Jesuits, is because, and Abraham Lincoln—I have all those quotes—I didn't probably put them in his talk. Abraham Lincoln himself said that the Jesuits were working on the side of the South, and they were trying to—you know—and people said, you know, quoted as saying that the Jesuits were trying to kill Abraham Lincoln, and in fact, that is who ultimately killed Abraham Lincoln, because the Pope he sided with the South. Because he did not want the United States to exist the way it did because he knew it would be a country, he would, it would be very difficult for them to control. It would take him hundreds of years to get control of. And America had, I mean, Ellen White even speaks about the fact that this country had, most churches in this country had anti-Catholic leagues. Catholicism was not readily accepted. This was a true Protestant nation. All of those people who were hiding, all of the descendants of those people in, in Holland and in England fled and came to the United States and Puritan, the Puritan way, all of that true Protestantism came to the United States and had a place where it was safe, just like says in Revelation chapter 12. The ground opened up, and when the ground opened up, part of that ground opening up was the writing of the, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, all of that opened up so that the Jesuits couldn't get to them. And the Civil War combined with the Napoleonic Wars in Europe earlier, and all the upheaval that was happening in Europe, made it so that the pontiff couldn't, the, Rome couldn't focus on the United States. They had to focus on their own troubles in, in Europe. And keeping control after the French broke off from them, they had to worry about gain, regaining control in Europe. And it allowed this little window, just like Ezra said, this little window of time opened up where the remnant could be assembled again. And in 1863, short to the prophecy, it comes into existence. Some people think the great, I don't even like the word disappointment. It was a purification. It was God allowing them to believe the way they believed so that you didn't have this large, overwhelming group of uncommitted people trying to join ultimately what was going to be God's remnant church. You think the church is a mess now? What would have happened if there was no great disappointment and all of these people who turned their back when things didn't work out the way they wanted it to walked away from the church. Imagine if all of them had joined the church initially. God knows what he's doing. I've learned that the hard way. He knows what he's doing. I trust him. And from a prophetic standpoint, he hits it on the head because the great disappointment was used to do two things. One, it got down, like one out of a thousand of the people that were with them wound up staying. Some ridic- I forget, I heard one preacher give the numbers. It was ridiculous. I mean, it just, it just basically splintered everybody and only a fraction of them, a remnant, stayed around. And what did the remnant do? They studied. Think about that. It drove them to study more. You, don't, you think Jesus is coming. He doesn't show up. You don't get mad and walk away. You say, no, I trust God. I believe God. It is righteousness by what? Faith. They believed God enough to stay there and study read, worship, and when they did that, they came out with a pure church in the end. And God knew he needed a pure church because he knew what the dragon, once this church came into existence, he knew what the dragon was going to try and do to it. So you don't want to start off with a lot of draw. You want to purify the church right out the gate, and that's what God allowed to happen when he did this for the remnant. This is powerful stuff, and it's one of the reasons that the Seventh-day Adventist church will survive. Now, I can't define exactly how it survives, but I know that God's people will exist and that God will always have a people. And GYC is a clear, clear, clear testimony that God is going to have a people. Because there are a lot of people who have no, would never believe you could bring this many young people into one place for this cause, and there's no hip-hop, rap, uh, gospel hip-hop concert that night There's no Christian rock concert. They're not giving away free iPods. Are they? Are they giving away free iPods? No? Okay, I just want to make sure I get one if they are. Um, I'm just kidding. You know, no gimmicks. Just the gospel. Just the truth. And there's busloads of people pouring into the city. Because God is still working to have his people. And to have those ready who will preach this truth in the last days. I love this church. This church is why I'm sane. It's why I'm not a gangster, even though I tried to be one. Wasn't very good at it. Went back to school. (laughs) Why I'm not a professional football player or a professional football player is because of what I learned at Faith Church in Hartford, Connecticut as a child. Revelation seminars and preaching every summer. The truth was drilled into us every year. We pitched tents, and, and we went from just Faith Church to Faith, Hope charity, and I think they even got more churches now in the little city of Hartford. And I watched the God's word go forth with power, and I watched the verse that says um, that God's word cannot go out and come back forward. I watched that every summer manifested. And I saw truth preach, and I saw the bountiful reward that came to God's people. And how the church just grew. So I love this church. I want this church to do well. That's one of the reasons why I don't mind working with the people that a lot of us don't agree with. Because a lot of them just don't know. That's the sad thing. Their churches, church, all churches are baptizing people. Some of them baptize them in the churches and they never get half the gospel. They never get much of the truth. So it's our job to tell them because it's sometimes it's really not people's fault that they don't know the truth. Somebody had to teach me. You know, someone had to instruct us so we have to be willing to be a part of really that prophecy and that forthtelling. Um, So, just a couple more slides and we'll take a break. The remnant defined arises after 1798, (coughs) keeps all Ten Commandments, has the spirit of prophecy, and preaches the message of the three angels on a worldwide scale, and that goes back to the text in Matthew um, 24, um, and this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. So if you have this, that's part of the reason you have the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus Christ, so that you can preach the gospel all over the world. That's the purpose. And without the full gospel, it just doesn't work well, because the health message is a part of that. Right? Sexual purity till marriage is a part of that. That's all a part of the gospel. Modesty is a part of that. All of that is in there. All right, last slide for this session. Um, and I like this from Marvin Moore's book, Challenges to the Remnant, a good book. Uh, I'm I'll Quoting books all day, if you remember them. Some of these are good books. This is a good book. Marvin Moore is a, is, a, is a good Adventist writer. I've been reading this stuff for years. But he says something powerful here because I want to make sure that I make this point as we, talk, we, we close this section. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that salvation is available exclusively through the Seventh-day Adventist church. Neither do we mean that our church dispenses salvation or the grace that leads to salvation. And we certainly don't believe that God loves us more than he loves people of other religious persuasions. That's important for us to re- to just, just to remember. Because the difference, this all starts when the Pope, just a couple of years ago, the new Pope, came out with his proclamation and basically said there's only one true church. It's the Catholic Church. And all of these Protestant churches, they're, they're just faking You can't be saved in their churches. He admits that, well, some of them, God has used some of these churches to do some good things, but in general, he says there's only one true church. And he says we are the only true church. And he gives the reasons that the Pope gives is uh, the the succession of Peter through the popes, which is a farce, as you all know. There was no such thing till hundreds of years after Peter died. Um, And Peter wasn't even the leader. If you read the Bible carefully, James seems to have been more a leader in Jerusalem than Peter was. And Peter's never mentioned in Rome in the Bible. So you don't know how he gets how to get to that conclusion, except that it works for the purpose that if their priests are the only ones that can transubstantiate the, the mass. And you know how they, they believe in transubstantiation, that the bread literally becomes the body of literally becomes the body of Christ It's cannibalism and, and the wine literally becomes the blood. It is cannibal. If it's really his body. Brody shouldn't eat it. I mean, I mean, it's human flesh at that point. So they believe that, which, I mean, Jesus didn't teach that. Um, and so they, they believe only their priests can do it, and you can't be saved unless you do that, unless you take part in mass. So that's why they believe, that's why he says here clearly, our church does not dispense salvation or the grace that leads to salvation. The Seventh-day Adventist church doesn't believe there's some magical ritual you have to come to us and do that we can only, only we can do and you'll be saved. We don't believe that. The Catholic Church believes that. And that's what he's trying to differentiate here. It's a very different um, point of, of, of understanding. And and of course, he, he, he really, I mean, this new pope is a pretty tough pope, actually. Very different in his style from the previous pope. Um, but as you're going to see, a lot of the leadership of the world and a lot of the um, Christian leadership in the United States are very fond of this pope. And this is where we know that the remnant is really going to get some fire on it in the next few years, in my opinion. Things are going to heat up Um, maybe by the time the next presidential election comes around because this is our stance, but the stance on the other side is very different. The other thing I want to say is this. Being a remnant is a privilege. Being a part of this church is a privilege and an honor and a responsibility. It should never make us proud, and I mean proud in a negative way. It should never make us arrogant. In fact, it humbles me And sometimes I feel unworthy to even have what God has given us in truth in this, in our denomination. It actually makes me, you know, uncomfortable sometimes. Like Mary, when the angel came to Mary, Mary wasn't like, "Woohoo! my child's going to be the Messiah. I won the lottery, you know, she didn't run around the village. Mary was like, no, you know, she was troubled. Because Mary understood the responsibility that comes with carrying truth. And each of us need to understand that this is not something that you get high-minded and heady about. It's something that should humble you. Let's pray and end this session, and then we'll take, I think, a 15-minute break um, and start back up. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for your truth. Continue to bless us today, Lord. Be with your people at GYC. Be with all of the sessions that are going on. And, Lord, let us leave this place ready to share Jesus Christ with this world. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.